Let's get it. Wednesday, October 2nd, 2019. Born the Battle. Brought to you by the Department of Veterans Affairs. The podcast that focuses on inspiring veteran stories and puts a highlight on important resources, offices, and benefits for our veterans. I am your host, Marine Corps veteran Tanner Iskra. Hope you're having a great week outside of podcast land. I just got back from vacation, uh, but I got sick on vacation, but we're still here and we're going to give it a go. Why? Because this week, specifically tomorrow and Friday, October 3rd and 4th, is the 26th anniversary of the Battle of Mogadishu. And here on our media engagement team, we have a lot planned to honor those who fought in that battle. One of those things is a video. Retired Master Sergeant Norman Hooten, otherwise known as Hoot, was played by Eric Bana in Black Hawk Down. He is now Dr. Hooten and is a full-time healthcare provider at the Orlando VA Medical Center. He recently sat down and gave his account of the battle to our digital media engagement team. And I'm gonna play for you a quick preview. Here it is, check it out. The events that led to the Battle of Mogadishu really started months prior to our arrival. When we got there, we didn't really think it was going to be anything of significance. Very quickly, we realized that that wasn't the case. We were pretty sure that the target, which was Muhammad Farah ID, was no longer in Somalia. We had shifted our focus more to his executive staff, and because we had shut down their communications so effectively, they had to have a face-to-face meeting, therefore was a target of opportunity for us. That full video will drop tomorrow, Thursday, October 3rd at 2.30 p.m. across all of our social media channels, especially Facebook. Check it out when it does. I also want to thank you for continuing to rate and review the show. Uh, We have, I mean, we're up to almost 85 ratings and three new reviews came in. First one is from San Oki. Four out of five stars. Not bad. I like the recap of the VA news and the veteran focused guest. Keep up the great work. San Oki, I'm glad you like the VA news. I'm glad you guys are liking the news releases. I was when I first started that, I didn't know if you guys would like it. It's kind of because or if it, if you thought it would be kind of boring. But I'm li- I'm liking the fact that you guys are getting something out of it. Next one is from Eaglet12. For good for retirees also. As a retiree working on an active army post, I don't use VA benefits often. About now I have heard a few I might use. Keep up the good work. Eaglet12. Glad to be of service to you. Glad that you're going to start using your VA benefits. And the last one is from Dan Sevens. There's a lot of sevens. 0311. Amazing guest. I love all the guests. Mel Brooks, Daniel from Pop Smoke. Just real insightful guys. Daniel, thank you for your feedback. I look forward to bringing you more guests that you will enjoy. Got four news releases for you this week. And I'm sure I missed some news releases during my absence. And full disclosure, I never read every single one of them. Just the ones that I think that would interest you. As always, you can look for news releases in the ticker at the top of blogs.va.gov. Or for a full list, you can always go to www.va.gov forward slash OPA forward slash P-R-E-S-S-R-E-L. All right, let's get to the news releases. First one says, for immediate release, the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs will implement new procedures by January 2020 for sharing medical information for veterans accessing health care in the community. The department is changing its procedures for electronic health information sharing in accordance with Section 132 of the VA Maintaining Internal Systems and Strengthening Integrated Outside Networks Act of 2018, the Mission Act. The change moves VA from an opt-in to an opt-out model of electronic health information sharing. That means you have to opt out of this. Veterans will no longer be required to provide signed written authorizations for VA to release electronic health information to community providers for the purpose of receiving medical treatment. VA shares health information with community providers using a secure and safe electronic system called Veterans Health Information Exchange. This electronic exchange of information provides patient safety, particularly during emergency situations, and allows for improved care coordination for veterans receiving care in their community. Basically, sharing your inform- your medical information with those with those providers in your community that you want. However, veterans who do not want their health information shared electronically can opt out by submitting VA Form 10-10164. That's VA Form 
10-10164 to the release of information offices at the nearest VA medical center now or at any time going forward. Veterans who previously opted out on VA Form 10-0484 prior to September 30th do not need to submit new forms. However, veterans who restricted what information VA shared by submitting VA Form 10-0525, the restriction request, will need to opt out entirely by submitting Form 10-10164. I'll put the link for 10164 in the show notes in the blog at blogs.va.gov. VA is committed to protecting veteran privacy. Only community health care providers and organizations that have partnership agreements with VA and are part of VA's approved trusted network may receive VA health care information. For more information about VA's health care information exchange, visit www.va.gov forward slash V-I-E-R. Again, I will put the form in the show notes on blogs.va.gov. And please share it around. All right, next one says, for immediate release, VA provides veterans fleeing domestic violence with housing and supportive services. October is National Domestic Violence Awareness Month. The U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs reminds veterans nationwide that VA Supportive Services for Veteran Families, or SSVF, and grant and per diem provide housing and other services for veterans experiencing domestic violence and intimate partner violence. Additionally, in observance of National Domestic Violence Awareness Month, VA's Intimate Partner Violence Assistance Program will gather with internal and external national partners this October to help promote the department's mission to foster healthy relationships and safety. Veterans losing their housing because they are fleeing domestic violence are eligible for SSVF Rapid Rehousing, which is an intervention designed to help homeless veterans and their families quickly access permanent housing. The GPD program provides housing and supportive services to help homeless veterans achieve residential stability increase their skill levels and incomes, and achieve greater self-determination. In 2017, Public Law 114-315 expanded eligibility for participation in the SSVF and GPD programs by broadening the definition of homeless to include any individual or family fleeing or attempting to flee domestic violence, dating violence, sexual assault, stalking, or other situations making it dangerous to remain in the home which includes situations that jeopardize the health and safety of children. Eligible veterans must have no other residents and lack both resources and support networks to obtain other permanent housing. Click SSVF or GPD to learn more about VA's domestic violence assistance, to learn more about VA's domestic violence assistance programs. And I'll put this um, link also in the show notes and the description. All right, the third one says, for immediate release, VA and healthcare lenders create a call to action through National Suicide Prevention Task Force. This focus is to raise awareness and drive change. The President's Roadmap to Empower Veterans and End the National Tragedy of Suicide or Prevents Task Force hosted a healthcare leadership meeting at the White House to bring together leaders across the healthcare industry to discuss their role in changing the culture around mental health, substance misuse, and addiction. VA recognizes it must work with communities, faith-based and tribal organizations, private and public partners, as well as state, local, and federal government agencies to achieve this goal. There's a quote by the secretary and that says, VA and the White House Domestic Policy Council established the Prevents Task Force in June via executive order signed by President Trump in March. The interagency task force is charged with implementing a roadmap for veteran suicide prevention at the national and community levels by March of 2020. As always, veterans who are in crisis or having thoughts of suicide and those who know a veteran in crisis can call the Veterans Crisis Line for confidential support available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Call 1-800-273-8255 and press 1 or text 838-255 or chat online at veteranscrisisline.net forward slash chat. Now, for this next one, if you're in California, it's very important for you to you. Listen up. For immediate release, VA to approve GI Bill benefits programs in California. Effective October 1st, which is yesterday, the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs will serve as the state approving agency for California in fiscal year 2020. The department will determine which programs of education are eligible for GI Bill benefits in California. VA is authorized by law to enter into agreements with state agencies, referred to as state approving agencies, to approve the qualifications of educational institutions and improve qualifying programs for the purposes of GI Bill education benefits. 
VA also determines whether SAAs are complying with legal standards and requirements and may assume the role of SSA in the state in that state if an agreement is not reached with the state, as in this case, California. The department notified California State Approving Agency for Veterans Education, school officials, GI Bill beneficiaries, and many other stakeholders on September 6th that it will not be entering into an agreement with California for fiscal year 2020. This decision was based on VA's assessment of the California State Approving Agency for Veterans Education's performance over the last three years. Although the CSAAVE sent a letter to California schools September 10th stating its intent to retain its authority to approve programs for GI Bill benefits, the CSAAVE will no longer serve as the SAA. VA will be assuming those duties as of October 1st. VA will provide additional notifications to key stakeholders to ensure a seamless transition for GI Bill benefits and student veterans. It is not uncommon for VA to act as the SAA for states during any given year, and VA has performed those functions in six states since fiscal year 2017. For more information, visit benefits.va.gov forward slash GI Bill. All right, this week's interview is also a veteran of the Battle of Mogadishu. He's an Army Ranger, a former Ranger of the Year competition winner, which is no small feat. He's an enlisted Army Ranger who later commissioned as a chaplain and upon exiting the Army, became a pastor, public speaker, and author. He is Army veteran Jeff Struker. Enjoy. So before Mogadishu, uh, you had a couple other deployments before that, correct? Yes. You were in Panama and Desert Storm. Uh, what, was, what was the mission at those places at those times? Yeah, I joined the Army in 1987, um, became an infantryman, and went uh, straight to the Army's 75th Ranger Regiment. While I was in the Ranger Regiment, um, the U.S. Army invaded the Republic of Panama, 1989. I was part of that invasion force. And then, of course, about a year later, the U.S. is involved in operations Desert Shield and Desert Storm in Iraq, and I was part of that as well. So the United States had kind of been off again, on again, with some tensions between the country's leader in Panama, Manuel Noriega, and mm-hmm. there was some... There was some escalating uh, issues between the U.S. and Panama. This was going on in the fall of 1989. And I got, because I'm in a special operations unit, I got notified more than once, hey, this looks like it could be for real. We're going to go down there. We're going to invade. A couple of times I got notified that my unit, I was in the reconnaissance detachment of the Ranger Regiment, that we were going to send the reconnaissance guys down there just to do some advanced surveillance. And uh, every time it got canceled at the last second until December of 89. And by then there was um, an attack by some local Panamanians on a U.S. serviceman. The violence was kind of escalating down there. And by December 20th of 1989, the U.S. decided to go ahead and invade for real. And the Ranger Regiment this was part of this larger special operations task force. First, the first goal of the 75th Ranger Regiment was seize two airfields, Torrios, Tacuman, and Rio Hato. They would become the place where we would bring the invasion force in. Second pressing uh, responsibility for the Ranger Regiment was defeat the Panamanian Defense Forces. But the third and kind of the big goal for us was capture the country's leader and Noriega. Yeah. So we started chasing Noriega around the country and literally it was kind of responding to tips. I referred to it as the hunt for Elvis because for about a week there, it was every time, (laughs) every time somebody mentioned he's over here, we'd go chase over there and we'd, we'd go chase over, over another location until finally we cornered him at the Vatican embassy and he surrendered himself to us in um, late 19, well, before the end of the year. So a couple of weeks into the invasion. 
Okay, so he was on he was on the run for a couple of weeks. Kind of sounds like the hunt for Saddam, almost. Uh, kind of kind of a, a similar situation. You know, everyone, a, a lot of my coworkers, they they were in Panama and they talk about Panama, and that was before my time. So I knew it was about Noriega. I knew it was about you know uh, changing the regime there, but I didn't really know strategically how it went down. So it's good to get some background on that. Yeah. Um, then fast forward a year later, the U.S. is in Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And this, of course, as your listeners are probably aware, is largely a desert battle, which is not the kind of thing that special operations are custom or tailored to. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was some discussions going on and off for months about whether or not the special operations force would even be used in Desert Storm. And eventually... Um, First Ranger Battalion sent some forces over there as kind of a go find and destroy Scud missiles and later on as a show of force. Some strategic key points, something like that. Got you. Why special operations? What made you want to go into special operations and the Rangers uh, to begin with? Well, that's a great question. I uh, really didn't know a lot about the military. I wanted to challenge myself. So really what steered me in that direction is I, when I went to the Army recruiter's office, I just simply asked, what's the toughest job in the Army? I want to see if I can <laughs> hang with the best of the best. Gotcha. But I did have a, a, a person whose father had served in Vietnam who said, Jeff, there's really two types of people in the military. There's those that are in it for a paycheck And there are those that are in it because they really want to make the world a better place, really want to do something um, good for the world. He said, you want to serve with those kind. And that's kind of what I didn't know anything about the Rangers, but that's kind of what steered me in that direction. Gotcha. So, Jeff, um, walk me through the strategical setup and then your involvement in the battle of Mogadishu uh, between October 3rd and 4th of 93. Okay. Um, by 93, middle of the summer of 1993, the U.S. was pretty involved in Somalia. We had started there late 1992, November, December, with Marines landing on the beaches of, of Somalia and wow. trying to provide food to a country that was literally starving to death. I mean, yeah. um 250, 350,000 people had already died of famine by the time that the United Nations and the U.S. showed up to start helping out. Oh, wow. And um, the we were the whole operation began as a United Nations peacekeeping mission to provide food to people that were starving to death. Mm-hmm. Um, the country didn't really have a military, no real police force, and the capital city had some warlords. African warlords in the capital city are kind of like gang leaders in the U.S. Yep. And these guys were basically fighting each other, trying to become the most powerful man in their country. And one or two of those warlords really didn't like the fact that the United Nations or the U.S. was there. But one of those warlords, his name was Muhammad Farah Idid. He ran the Hopper Getter clan. Yeah. And Idid decided to start to target United Nations workers. He started to attack U.S. supply convoys. And by the summer of 93, he was escalating in violence on the peacekeepers. Yeah. The movie Black Hawk Down tries to explain this in the first 30 seconds with the print on the screen, but really... Yep. It's yep. hard to it's hard to grasp. Exactly. That's why I was like, man, I got a guy that's actually been there. It can kind of lay that out because yeah. you're right. They really tried it in the very beginning with 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 with, with that text. But yeah, you, I I figured you'd be able to explain it more than just that thirty seconds yeah. of text. So what people really want to know: How did it go from handing out food to helicopters getting shot down? And the answer is, Idid attacked and ambushed twenty four Pakistani workers at a food distribution site. Killed all twenty four of them. The United Nations Security Council meets together and they decide, okay, we've got to do something to respond to this. But also, if ID continues to do what he's doing, there's no way that this country has a chance at peace and a future. So the U.S. responded with Task Force Ranger, which was my unit, a company of rangers. It was some a helicopter unit from Fort Campbell, Kentucky, and then special operations forces from all across the military. And our mission wasn't, this is the part that I think 
many watch, many people who watch the movie miss out. Our mission wasn't to go secure food and to help starving people. Our mission is to find Idid and the high-ranking leaders in his clan, and we're supposed to capture them if possible, yeah. but if not, kill them and take them out of the equation. And that's yeah. really what led up to the the steps in that 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 eventually became Black Hawk Down. Gotcha. So you had before before you guys were there, you had the Marines there, and you had what tenth mouth tenth Mountain Division there as well. Yeah, there were they, they were they were the ones that were the helping out with the food and stuff, correct? Right. There were U.S. supply uh, forces there. There was. Um, U.S. Uh, security forces that were there, but all of them were there as part of what's called United Nations Operation Somalia, UNICEF. Gotcha. We gotcha, go over there with a different mission, and our mission is kill or capture, capture bad guys. Gotcha. Makes sense. Makes sense. Task Force Ranger does seven missions over there, but it's the last mission that gets all of the media attention for that eventually becomes the book in the movie Black Hawk Down. And then uh, if you can just walk me through uh, your involvement during the battle. Yeah. I was a squad leader. Um, my platoon had the responsibility for the ground reaction force for all of Task Force Ranger. We had about 10 Humvees um, with us. And my job was generally to be the first Humvee in and out of the city streets. I had my squad uh, located on two of those 10 Humvees. And generally speaking, Task Force Ranger went we didn't always do missions by helicopters, but when we sent in folks by helicopter, because we were in a very densely populated capital city, we couldn't get them back out by helicopter. So the ground yeah. reaction force would roll in. Our job was to basically provide some heavy weapons for the task force. It was to provide um, the ride that would get the guys that flew in by helicopters out, but also the prisoners that we were taking would go on the Humvees and would go out of the uh, target building with us as well. So generally speaking, all of those missions, we would launch the Humvees at the same time or immediately before the helicopters went in, um, which is mm -hmm. true of the big battle on, on October 3rd, 1993. We yeah. would typically stage at the target building or, or half a block away, a block away. And then as the as the uh, stuff on target started to wrap up, we'd roll up to the target building, throw everybody on the vehicles, get everybody out of there. Yeah. And a couple of times we did helicopter only assault. I mean, Humvee only assaults, but okay. generally speaking, that's how it went. And I was typically the guy who navigated the Humvees in and navigated them out of the city streets. Gotcha. As our mission set progressed, they started to become a little bit more dangerous because the city was becoming a lot more volatile, but also because we were starting to really hit ID in the parts of town that he controlled. And the big battle on October 3rd, we were rolling in in the middle of the afternoon in broad daylight to the very center of his part of town. And we knew this was going to be rough. Um, Bacara Market. Right. We just didn't realize how bad it was going to be. I don't think anybody, even our best intelligence folks, un understood how many bad guys were going to be in that, there, in that part of town that day. Mm. The movie is pretty accurate. We assaulted the target building with special operators on little birds. Rangers flew in on helicopters and provided blocking positions. And then our Humvees rolled in to get everybody um, right after the assault wrap force wrapped up and get them out of there. We wanted to be out in less than 30 minutes. Yeah. Um, one of the Rangers, when he was sliding down the ropes from the Black Hawk helicopter, missed the rope. He was very seriously wounded, and I got dispatched immediately to take him back to the base. And it was on my way back that I came through this intense enemy gunfight, and Sergeant Dominic Pillow was shot and killed right behind me. He was the first guy killed in action from our task force in Somalia, and he was the guy who caused all of us to realize uh, we may not make it out of the city streets alive. Yeah. Um. After I made it back to the base, we had multiple helicopters getting shot down. We put our search and rescue force in at the first crash site, but we, by the time the second aircraft crashed, we didn't have anybody else to go back out there. So 
I got sent back out into the city streets to go to the Mike Durant crash site and ultimately spent the rest of the night on those city streets back and forth in and out of the city, taking people back and uh, fighting with the rest of the guys from our task force until about nine o'clock the next morning. Hmm. That's the PG rated version of it in 30 minutes or less. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, You said it was pretty accurate in the film. Uh, who played the, you in the movie and did you, have you ever actually got to meet him? Yes. I got a chance to meet Brian Van Holt. He's the actor who plays me in the movie. The, the guys that were portraying Rangers came to Fort Benning, Georgia, and they were trained by some men from the Ranger regiment. And yeah. when Brian Van Holt showed up, some of my friends from the Ranger regiment called me and said, Jeff, the guy who's playing you is here. So I made a trip to Fort Benning to meet him and we spent about a day together before they started filming the movie. Is there anything about that battle that you don't think got communicated clearly that you wish could have been communicated clearly? Well, there's a few things that I think are hard for the people who watch the movie or even read the book to understand. Yeah. One, you know, this movie is pretty violent, but it doesn't even scratch the surface. I mean, in reality, it's probably one-tenth of the real violence from the actual battle. And I don't think the average person could stand it if it was even close to as violent of the real deal. Secondly, the crowds that you see in the movie, they're about one-tenth of the size of the, you know, the numbers of people that we were fighting against. I mean... That's amazing because those crowds, those movies, that movie was huge. I mean, our estimates are we're fighting somewhere between 10 and 20,000 armed Somalis during the course of that night. And there's only a couple hundred of us in the city streets. That's amazing. But um, the thing that I think I really want your listeners to hear is you in the book, in the movie, Black Hawk Down, you have what a couple of key people did. I just happened to give an interview, which eventually made it to the book, which eventually became the movie. But in reality, almost everybody there fought heroically. This was one of those battles where uncommon valor was common that night. And uh, even to the brand new private, it was incredible what they did on those city streets that night. And I don't think the average viewer of Black Hawk Down really grasped that. We'll, uh, we'll leave that. We'll leave that battle there with just that. Um, so after the battle, uh, let's talk about later on in your career. You won the best Ranger competition in 96. Number one, what do you have to do to win that competition? Is it like today's best soldier competition? I mean, is it is it physical? Is it through shooting? Is it a board type of thing? Or is it like a combo of all three? Yeah. What do you have to do to win the best Ranger competition? The easy answer is you got to be a little bit crazy. A little bit insane. <laughs> gotcha. Because uh, the best ranger competition typically for decades has ranked as one of the top three, top five toughest endurance competitions in the world. Not in the okay. military, but in the world. Best ranger starts typically on a Friday morning. It goes three days nonstop, no sleep, food is strictly controlled, and it is one tough physical event after another the average best ranger competition will start with about 52 man teams you have to have a partner and both you and your partner are ranger qualified um it gets teams from all across the military and even from foreign services and usually oh wow i didn't know that yeah usually 50 percent of those teams will not even finish the first night um I competed for three years in a row, 1994, 95. My partner and I finished in fourth place both years. And then in 1996, uh, with a different partner, I had the privilege of winning Best Ranger and then coached some of the teams from 1997. But it's there's no no, uh, exaggeration to say this is truly one of the most grueling physical events in the world. And it's also highly technical. So the whole middle of the second day is back to back technical events when you're already physically exhausted, you know, without sleep and, and, uh, running on no energy and no sleep. That's when they hit you with the technical events and want to see, can you, can you think through problems at the same time? What are some of the events? 
Uh, it's first night is a long distance forced march, undetermined distance, undetermined uh, time. Second night is a uh, un, is a long distance over the horizon, so to speak, um, navigation. There's okay. multiple weapons events from pistol all the way to heavy machine guns and everything in between. There's all kinds of technical events on the second day. Um, there's uh, the full array of physical events from carrying litters over a prescribed distance to um, running, swimming, you know, uh, going through obstacle course, uh, through a water confidence test. I mean, you, you, anything that a soldier might get thrown at in combat is typically thrown at them during the best ranger competition. And That's usually awesome. you go from one event to the next to the next with no sleep and no break. Sounds like a, sounds like a crucible on, on steroids. It's, uh, it's pretty rough. <laughs> so after that, um, you commissioned. So tell me about that journey. Yeah, that's uh, that's probably one of the most often asked questions I ever got in my life is, Jeff, what happened? You went from Army Ranger and Best Ranger winner to Army Chaplain. How did that how did that happen? <laughs> and that the easy answer, the one word answer to that question is it's the events immediately after Somalia. My faith really influenced me the entire time that I was an enlisted soldier. And it really it really helped me when I was on the battlefield and I felt this call from God is the language that I would use that he wanted me to do something different. Yeah. So I ended up going to college. I went to college while I was still in the Ranger Regiment, did a degree, eventually went to seminary and became an army chaplain. And I spent my last 10 years on active duty as an army chaplain. So you deployed a couple more times as a chaplain. Is, was there anything of note about those deployments? Yes, uh, I deployed <laughs> sure, five, more times, uh, five times to Afghanistan, nine times to Iraq as an army chaplain. And In by tenure. now, yeah. Oh, wow. Um, by now, obviously, I had a multitude of combat experience. So I was kind of not just an old guy, but I was an old guy with a ton of experience. But I was also the guy that most people realize, okay, he's really been there. He really knows what he's talking about. So a lot of my soldiers were willing to listen to me the day that I walked in the door because they knew my reputation from Black Hawk Down. Yeah. Um, and some of those combat deployments were prescribed duration, prescribed location. Some of them were, hey, drop what you're doing, get on an airplane. There's some bad guys that we need to send you. And most of those deployments were in the 82nd Airborne Division or the Ranger Regiment. And sometimes it was get on an airplane. We need to send you overseas because there's some bad guys over there that we need you to kill. Yeah. Um, and those were really rough. All of the deployments were rough on my family, but those unprescribed ones were really rough because it was kiss your wife goodbye and don't know when you'll see her again. It may be six days. It may be six weeks. It may be six months. Don't know. Got to have a strong family for something like that. Right. Mm. Yeah. And I, I would, if, I, if you don't mind, I would say that at this point, this is one of the things that uh, I don't think the average American understands what the military family gives up for their freedom. Oh, absolutely. They absolutely. like to shake the hands of warriors and say thank you. And I believe warriors deserve to be thanked, can't be thanked enough. Sure. But I really believe the military families, those spouses, those children, those parents who put their sons and daughters on aircraft, Man, they deserve more attention and more respect than they're they, they're given. Absolutely, uh, an upcoming episode that I'm going to have. There's a, a nonprofit that takes uh, mil military family uh, children and yeah. gets them to meet like their sports heroes. Oh, that's awesome! Real quick, did you know that the VA also has a center of faith? I did not know that. No. Yeah, it's uh, it's currently run by a uh, Marine veteran. Uh, his name is Conrad Washington. And its entire goal is to get VA information out to clergy of any faith so they can, in turn, help their congregations. Well, that's good to hear. Yeah. So uh, that's going to be – that's also in my archives, and I can send you a yeah, link. Yeah, please we do. Can, we, can, we can put it in the notes sure. and everything. So while you were in, uh, give me either a best friend or your greatest mentor? 
I had uh, I can't narrow down the greatest mentor to one guy because the, sure. the the guys that I showed up to the Ranger Regiment while they were those those old timers that were there when I showed up to the Ranger Regiment, a lot of those guys took me in and treated me like a little brother. They didn't have to, but they did. Um, probably they realized this guy's an idiot and he doesn't know anything. We need to help him out a little bit. I think is probably what happened. Um, but I really believe like, like, many, like many of us yeah. boots when we start. Yeah. I really believe I became the warrior that I, I was because of the investment those guys had on me. One of them, I guess I'll, I'll single this guy out. Sure. He was a command sergeant major at the time. I was a young sergeant and then newly promoted staff sergeant. His name was command sergeant major Leon Guerrero. Leon Guerrero had been serving in the army for 30 years at this point, had been mm-hmm. serving um, since Vietnam and had been investing in, in young sergeants like me. So by the time I became a leader in the Ranger Regiment as a sergeant, he was coaching me and steering me along. And to this day, Leon Guerrero is one of those guys that Im- impacted me. In fact, when I got promoted to staff sergeant, he looked me in the eyes and he said, Jeff, I remember getting promoted to staff sergeant in 1969 in Vietnam. And it still stands out as one of the most memorable moments of my career. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. uh, He was still serving at the time and was still investing in Rangers like me and still helping to, you know, make good warriors. And those guys, man, I can't say enough about what those guys did for people like me. Here's another guy that stands out. If you don't mind, I'll mention him real quick. His no, name is Jeff Mellinger. And Jeff Mellinger retired from the Army just a few years ago, the last enlisted soldier in the U.S. Army who was drafted in Vietnam and was still serving more than 30 years later and still investing in young guys and still loving on warriors and their families, um, even though oh, he was awesome. drafted um during the Vietnam era and Mellinger made an impact on a lot of people. I was one of them. That's awesome. If you were to name, you know, one of the biggest lessons you learned while you were in the army, what would have been? Um, I became a weapon from either, from either one of these two gentlemen. Sure. I'll tell you, uh, there was a moment where I realized I didn't know what I thought I knew. And it was when I became a weapon squad leader in the Ranger Regiment. And, uh, there was a moment standing on a machine gun range in Fort Benning, Georgia, where I had been in the army for a long time and in the Ranger Regiment for a long time. And I thought I knew a lot. In fact, I thought I knew it all. And there was a day that I realized I don't know half of what I need to know, let alone what I think I know. <laughs> gotcha. And so those guys took you under under their wing a little bit. Yeah, those guys were the guys that kind of took me under their wings and said, "You're right, Jeff. You don't know what you need to know, and I'll help Good. you." That's awesome. So you got out in 2011, right? That's right. What was the transition like in 2011? Because that was right on the back side of the of the recession, right? Yeah, I'll tell you. Uh, I'll just tell your listeners honestly. I didn't be- didn't think that this would be uh, difficult for me, but I struggled a little bit after leaving the army. Um, I enlisted at eighteen. I I spent more than twenty, almost twenty uh, three years in the army. I loved every minute of it. And when yeah. it came time to retire, I knew it was time for me to retire. And I was looking forward to the future. What I didn't realize is how much I would miss it. And I, there are still many days that I miss the camaraderie. I miss the urgency. I miss the um, significance of what you're doing for the country and for the world. That's hard to, um, it's hard to explain to people that have never served in the military. Absolutely. Now, I still... Because I'm still in ministry now, I've replaced that sense of urgency for uh, a sense of making an impact for the kingdom of God. But um, if it wasn't for that, I think I would really struggle. I would have struggled a lot more after leaving the military. So you rolled right into a ministry as soon as you got out? Yes. The very next day I had, I didn't even have 24 hours between leaving, retiring from the army and starting in ministry. I have retired in Columbus, Georgia, right outside of Fort Benning. And one of my goals is to stay in touch with warriors for the rest of my life. So I still That's get great. opportunities to go to Fort Benning and to speak to audiences, though they call me a gray beard, not because I have a beard, but because I, I, I'm an old man and starting to turn gray. But <laughs> I want to make a difference like people made a difference in my life. 
I saw you were also making a difference uh, not too long ago during the government shutdown as well. I read an article you guys uh, helped out yeah. some, some federal workers. Sure. We, of course, Fort Benning is a massive military base and Columbus, as a result, has a lot of uh, DA civilians, a lot of DOD civilians, a lot of contractors. And during that government yeah. shutdown, some people weren't getting a paycheck. So I asked the folks from our church who responded overwhelmingly to give yeah. a donation so that we can just help pay the bills until the government uh, shutdown was over with. That's, that's great things about, um, about uh, local congregations that they can help out communities yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, so uh, Jeff, are you still a, a pastor or are you, are you currently taking a break? I'm currently taking a break, um, but still staying in Columbus, Georgia, still trying to minister to people and still trying to stay connected with warriors. You should, you know what I'm thinking? I think you should do a podcast yourself. Yeah, I, that's funny you would say that, man. I just <laughs> said that to my wife this morning. Like, I think I need to start looking into doing a podcast. Uh, you know, have you heard of the Veteran Nation? Uh, Matt Eversman started one. Really? He did, or he did, he, or he did one. Um, I don't know if it's still going, but man, it's a great arm to support some of your content. Um, I see that you're blogging and stuff. I see on your Twitter yeah. uh, that you did that you did one for the fourth. Uh -huh. um, you know, podcasting is a good way to promote your blogs and stuff. I, um, it's a way for us to get our stuff out at blogs.va.gov. I think I may take you up on this. Any advice that you have or any suggestions you can send to me, I'd love it because I literally was saying that to my wife about an hour and a half ago. Absolutely. I think you'd have a lot of great content that people would listen to, especially with your history, your background, your contacts, um, your, your faith. I, th I think that's, that, that has podcasts written all over it. Awesome, man. man. <laughs> Thanks for the suggestion. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you've co-authored now you've co-authored five books as well. Um, one was about Block Hawk Down, but there's are but there are four others that are are they nonfiction? Yeah, no, they're fiction. Or are they they're fiction? They're mm -hmm. fiction. What what prompted you to be an author? Uh, well, great question. Um, right after the movie Black Hawk Down came out, I got inundated with requests to go speak to audiences all over America, and sure, I was still in the army, couldn't possibly go to all of those. So eventually, a couple of publishing companies approached me about putting my story in a book. And I was really reluctant to do it at first, but what won me over was the thought, I can't make it to 75 or 80% of the people that would like for me to come speak to them personally, but I can put it in a book and maybe the book will encourage some people. Yeah. So that's what led to the first book, the nonfiction book, my memoirs. And then I was trying to get this book into the hands of warriors, but I realized most warriors are not reading not reading many books at all, to be honest with you, but they're really not reading <laughs> yeah. much beyond fiction. So I approached, I had a, I have a good friend who's a literary agent and I approached him and said, look, I'm, I'm looking to write the kind of book, well, not write, but I'm looking to buy some books that are high impact, really action packed books, but they have a good, strong moral message and they're written for men. And he said, that stuff doesn't exist, Jeff. So his suggestion was, why don't you write it? Why don't you start it? And at the same time, four or five other authors were doing the same thing. And it kind of became a little subgenre of men's literature. Oh, well, that's how it, how it all happened. Got you. So, um, I mean, a, a lot has changed in the writing game. I hear it. I hear it's more difficult now to make a living as an author rather than it was like 10 years ago. Oh man. The whole literary industry was turned upside down when digital print really became mainstream. And gotcha. um, I'm talking some of the biggest, most reputable booksellers and book publishers in the world went bankrupt and almost everybody is still reeling from the whole digital print um, move. I yeah. think it's a really good thing that we're doing all of these, um, that we're making a book, books available in digital print, but it's, it's challenged everything that has ever been established in the whole publishing industry. For someone that's getting out and wants to be an author, uh, what would, what would be like your number one piece of advice? Yeah, my piece of advice, you just kind of alluded to it. And I've said this to many aspiring authors is don't write for income. If you think you're going to be able to pay the bills writing a book, you're not. If you have something that is a, that is burdening, that is a burden that you really feel like you have to say, 
then and only then start working on the book. So the language that I use is write for influence, write to influence people, but don't write for income. Because if you think you're going to pay the bills with a book, you're not. Unless your last name is JK, unless your name is JK Rowling or Dan Brown, you're not going to pay the bills by writing. Tom Clancy, someone with someone with a TV deal or a movie deal. Um, Jeff, what's one thing you learned in service that you apply to your life today? Uh, the, the army specifically the ranger regiment taught me how to focus and gave me discipline and I will spend the rest of my life benefiting from the focus and self-discipline that the ranger regiment gave me every day. It helps me, um, not get sidetracked. It helps me, uh, follow the mission that I'm on and not, um, get distracted. So I can't thank the military enough and the warriors that invested in me for giving me, uh, for really molding me into the man that I am today. Um, is there a nonprofit or a veteran in the veteran community that you see as a shining example for others to emulate? Yeah, there's about 15 of them out there that I am really, <laughs> really fond of. And whenever I can, I try to support, um, a couple of them are really working hard to minister or really to influence those guys and gals that are struggling real bad with PTSD right now. I think the world yeah. of those, but a, a nonprofit that I have always been a big fan of is the Fisher house. I don't think oh, yeah. many folks realize the cost incurred to the military family for let's say a single guy who's going through an extensive hospitalization. If his parents fly to see him, it's going to cost them perhaps their life savings. So the Fisher Absolutely. House provides a place for people to stay whenever a loved one is in the hospital. And um, I can't uh, can't say enough how proud I am of the Fisher House Foundation. We uh, we actually had the CEO of the Fisher House Foundation on the show. Uh, it's in our archives. So uh, for those listeners that are lo- looking to see what the Fisher House is and what they do, uh, they, like, they do amazing work yeah. for, thank, for veteran families. Ronald McDonald House for Warriors. Exactly. Exactly. So any of the listeners that want to check that out, it's in our archives. Um, Jeff, is there anything else that um, I haven't asked that you think is important to share to our listeners? Well, I would just say uh, to the VA and to all of the folks that are supporting warriors, the VA has gone through some bad press over the last several years, and it's unfortunate. But I want to say as a taxpaying citizen and as a patriot, I am proud of our country's Veterans Administration for the many ways that you're supporting veterans. Thank you for what you're doing to take care of those old warriors and their families. Not just old warriors, but young warriors and their families. Getting out of the military, I was missing this camaraderie. It's frustrating when you try and talk to people that don't understand. I still had the anger, I still had the uh, addictions, but we didn't talk about that. Came to a point where it's like, okay, I really need to talk to somebody about this. Family more or less encouraged me, you know, go go to the VA. It's okay to go get help. It's okay to talk to people, because it takes true strength to ask for help. Hear veterans' real stories of strength and recovery at maketheconnection.net. want to thank Jeff for taking the time to talk with us. For more information on what Jeff is up to today or to book him as a speaker, you can go to www.jeffstrucker.com. It's got all of his social media there. You can follow him and, and you can follow him and, and all that. This week's Born the Battle Veteran of the Week is Army Veteran, and we talked about him earlier, Dominic Pilla. The following comes from njrunforthefallen.org and the Vineland Daily Journal. Sergeant Dominic Pilla was born on March 31st, 1972. He was from Vineland, New Jersey, and he assigned to the 3rd Battalion 75th Ranger Regiment in Fort Benning. He had zest, no smoking, no drinking, vigilant against flab, but a lover of fun. He was a real hellraiser. He was a real card, says his mother, Diane Pilla. He loved life. His father, Ben Pilla, a Vietnam War veteran, gave his son big shoes to fill. That's why Dominic chose the elite Army Rangers, his family said. Still, Pilla figured when he got out, and it would be soon, 
he would angle for a job at the FBI or the D or with the DEA. He always wanted to be special, said his older brother Frank. He wanted to be one of the few, not one of the masses. It had become a tradition in a family that had sent sons off to war. After Sergeant Dominic Pillett deployed to Somalia with his ranger company in August of 1993, the family put together a package of peppermint sticks and balls of provolone cheese. Dominic's father had gotten such a package when he was serving in Vietnam. His brother Frank had gotten one while off the coast of Kuwait during the Persian Gulf. Dominic's package was returned unopened to his parents' home in Violin, New Jersey, as he had been killed before it reached him. Sergeant Dominic Bull was with the convoy taking an injured soldier from the October 3rd firefight in Mogadishu, Somalia, to be treated. He was killed when the Humvee convoy was ambushed. Don McPill was posthumously awarded the Bronze Star for Valor. On April 5th, 2019, Dominic's hometown of Vineland, New Jersey, dedicated the Sergeant Dominic Pilla Middle School. We honor his service. That's it for this week's episode. If you yourself would like to nominate a Born the Battle Veteran of the Week, you can. Just email us at podcast at va.gov. Include a short write-up or a link and let us know why you would like to see him or her as the Born the Battle Veteran of the Week. If you like this episode and haven't subscribed yet, please do. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, pretty much any podcatching app known as cell phone, computer, tablet, or man. And as always, for more stories on veterans and veteran benefits, check out our website at blogs.va.gov. And follow the VN social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, Rally Point, etc. DEPT Vet Affairs, U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, no matter the social media, you can always find us with that blue check mark. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you right here next week.